Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Tara Lokandwala and Emma Ajiman, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Michael Ingram, Global Market Strategist at WH Island. Defensive income shares and funds are supposed to fall less on the broader market in times of volatility, such as over the month of October. But over the first three months of this year, these kinds of assets fail to do this. Taha, first of all, why can certain types of income shares hold up better during falling markets? Morning, Leonor. Well, the theory goes that this is based on the, their income. So they are they are long term holders. That even in economic downturns or equity market falls, these are the kind of stocks that people still want to keep hold of. They kick off a bit of income. They you know in income drawdown and stuff like that. So they um they work like that. They also tend to be not cyclical. Defensive businesses, consumer focused, staple consumer staple companies, things like that. And you can almost they might get impacted by the share price. The revenue might fall slightly, but not as much as the kind of really economically sensitive growth stocks or kind of, you know, mining and oil and stuff like that. And they're also, they tend not to be growth stocks, then they're never the darlings of the, the previous bull market that kind of precedes a, a bear market. So therefore, they're not hit as hard. Um, because generally, when things go sour, you look at what was doing well, and that's what you where you take your money from, because that's whatever kind of forced the previous bull market is probably what is going to have preceded the the bear market, if that makes sense. So, yeah, they are, as I said, staples, kind of software, healthcare, repeat businesses, cash generative, those kind of things. So why did defensive income equities fail to mitigate downside at the start of this year? So uh, I looked into this and I, I spoke to a few analysts and the reason being is that it was actually at the start of the year, it was more of an unusual sell-off compared to what we saw in October. Um, it was based on a kind of, it was more of a knee-jerk, kind of sentiment-driven reaction to one piece of US economic data that made people think we were starting to go late cycle, but then everything that followed that basically disproved that that, that thing, that, that sentiment. So it and it also seemed to be more of a, a valuation driven sell-off as well, which again as I as I mentioned, so things that were hit harder at the beginning of the of the year, like in January and February, were the kind of growth stocks, the tech stocks that have, you know, become seriously valued and, and things like that. Um, but what also happened in Q1, which is kind of what defines why defensive stocks didn't do as well, is that while people were selling, people were buying back in. So actually, over the three months, growth stocks outperformed defensive stocks, because as much as there was kind of a lot of volatility, there was enough people who, after realizing the economic data wasn't as bad as they thought, were happy to put money back into the market. That didn't happen in October. So that's the, the major difference. That's why in October defensive stocks actually outperformed. You've done some research which also suggests that quality stocks aren't as defensive as they seem. Why is this? So this is this is where it gets slightly confusing and, and I go into this uh, in the piece in this week's magazine. It actually comes down to the way in which you define defensive. Um, so the way one way to find kind of uh, defensive companies by looking at the yield because that as I mentioned earlier they're income stocks they have a they kick off a high yield um, but what also is high yield is a value stocks because that's a, is a, is a very common way to define what is a value company because that's the depressed share price uh, standard level of uh, income and this conflates the the situation so when you look at whether kind of high yield defensive stocks as as as, as they can be known actually I performed, you have to break it down and see whether it was the quality companies that I kind of described or the value stocks, um, which are just depressed. And that's where it gets really confusing because there are some arguments that suggest that value stocks can outperform in recessions. They can also outperform if a sell-off is valuation-driven, not macro-driven. Um, and when you look, when you break it down in to kind of Q1 in October, 
what actually happened in Q1 is that quality stocks outperformed and in October value stocks outperformed. So it's getting hard to pin down whether it was the quality dif- dif- the quality characteristics that we that we know was that was doing the right thing or whether it was just a, a value turn that we haven't quite picked up on that hasn't become a long-term trend yet. Okay, a bit confusing. No, absolutely. Um, yeah. So on that note, what kind of income shares should you hold going ahead? Again, this is uh, there, there are two arguments to consider here. Generally, analysts will vote for the quality stocks because they say that with quality stocks at the moment is they have done so well uh, in over the pre- over recent years that their valuation is a concern, and some people think that because they're valued so highly, they won't be defensive in a downturn. Analysts tend to disagree with that, saying that valuation doesn't matter as much in an economic downturn. It only matters over the long term. So. If you're buying in for defensive characteristics, people will still do that and buy into the idea that a cash-generative quality business will be a good place to be in a, in a bear market. But then, as I said, if in, if in the feature I go into the arguments based on the value can outperform in a, in a sell-off. There are even kind of models that show that values, value stocks can outperform in recessions, which is interesting when you consider that what we, could, what we think about with value stocks tend to be the the miners, oils, banks, very kind of economically sensitive businesses. But for some reason, there is data showing that they, they can do this quite well. And I suppose it kind of depends which which line you fall on. For me, logically, it's quality stocks that make sense. But uh, again, I'm open to ideas. I'm open to be proven wrong by, by other people's opinions here. Okay, so what funds could you invest in to get exposure to these quality stocks? So I, um, I've I've got a selection of funds here, two of which I think are focused on quality stocks. And then if anyone thinks that the value argument merits uh, consideration, there's a value one as well. Um, they, they, they will be common names to, to our listeners. Even load global income um, is one that I've picked out. Again, that's a, it's a high yielding fund, but they actively seek out the quality businesses. Um, that I talked about. Uh, it's run by Ben Peters and Chris Elliott. Listeners might be aware of Evenload Income, which is the, the UK equity version of the, the same strategy, which has done very, very well recently. Uh, and the other defensive one is Troy Trojan Global Income. It's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, run by James Harris. Again, uh, Troy are very good at running strategies that are consider the uh, a bear market at all times, so they're very defensive and, again, buy these kind of quality businesses. Okay. Um, Michael, do you agree that funds which invest in defensive income shares are a good way to mitigate downside and falling markets? Well, yes, in, in principle, but reliably identifying what actually constitutes you know, defensive income is, as, as has already been indicated, is actually quite tricky. I, I think you know, certainly two themes which um, are at the forefront of my thinking on this are, um, you know, structural change and cyclical exposure. Because, I mean, a lot of the areas that you'd say are natural homes for this style of investing have issues with one or both of those factors. So, for instance, you'd say, well, you know, def- defensive income, and you'd go to something like tobacco. Um, but, you know, it's been a horrible performer, you know, th- this year. Um, and only last night, you know, I saw a headline suggesting that the, uh, the FDA in the United States are going to look at further restrictions on e-cigarettes. So, you know, that's, that's, that, that, that sector is not going to behave in this cycle, if we can even talk about cycles anymore, um, as it did did previously um in a in a in a similar way I mean, you could look at you know telecommunications i mean that's that's not the sort of you know copper cable and eot business that it used to be again not a great not a great performer i mean look at look at the most you know recent um example of a significant market drawdown one month of october yeah so FTSE all share i believe was down 5.19 percent uh total return hope that's correct um uh you know telcos are down five 
you know, so not much defence, not much defence there. And you know, if you look at, if you dig down and look at the uh, you know the usual suspects, shall we say, with the, the, the index heavyweights, it's sustainability, sustainability of that dividend, which is the issue, and that's very much driven by the regulatory environment. It's driven by the needs to spend on things like five G, you know, capex. You know, there are all sorts of things floating around here. So, you know, it, it, it's great to say, well, you know, these are the sectors, the dividend they appear to be. Um, offering is attractive you know if you look at the broader picture again perhaps not surprising that they're not performing as we might expect and I would make a broader point on top of all of this is that um, I think it's very very important to uh, for analysts when they're looking at these companies looking at these sectors to engage in some form of strategic analysis so i think if you're if you're sitting there as an analyst with your your discounted cash flow valuation and whatever they they, they quite often are exercising in i would say naive extrapolation and we all know that most of your, your valuation comes from the so-called you know terminal value bore everybody um but um you know, it's very, very sensitive to 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 the assumptions that you make, and if you don't have an appreciation for where these various industries are going, because some of, some of these industries are just being torn up, mm. um, you have you don't have that reality check um, when you're putting your numbers in and your valuation and you're deciding whether to invest or not to invest in these stocks and these sectors. Confusing uh, it, picture. It yeah. becomes a rubbish in, rubbish what out. What it comes <laughs> down to, though, is you know, bearing all that in mind, is one kind of income share better than another for defensive income? Or can you just not define it like that? Well, I think a natural conclusion from what I've just said is that, well, a particular issue, for instance, that, that you know, the FTSE All Share has is just the, the sheer concentration of, of income generation. Um, and that's concentrated in a few stocks and a few sectors, most of whom, you know, you could say, well, have issues, you know, one way or the other. So, you know, the miners, you can go, well, you know, okay, they're, they, they've been rehabilitated over the last few years, but, you know, um, you know, who's to say that they won't go bonkers again and start buying everything as they did, you know, 15, 16 years ago. Um, you know, banks, you know, how are they going to fare in a low interest rate environment, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think what I was saying is, is that if you, if you, looking for income you probably will not get sufficient diversification by really playing uh, you know a, a pseudo passive game i think you're probably going to want to be a little bit more eclectic uh, i think you're probably going to have to want you know you're going to probably want to drill down a little bit further maybe into sort of the more uk mid-cap space um and, but you've got to be very careful. I and mean, all this is predicated, you know, on risk tolerances. You know, I've got to be very mm. careful here. Uh, you know, but, you know, we, it's, it, it, you've got to take it within a portfolio context. Um, but, you know, what I would, would say is that, you know, quite often you'd say, well, income fund, um, you know, it, by, by, by definition, it's defensive. By definition, I invested in blue chip companies. Ergo, it's, you know, I think the riskiness of this fund and the performance of this fund will look like this. Well, guess what? You know, it's it's probably not going to be the case. But, you know, I think, you know, you need to do a bit more hard work, look at uh, good companies, companies which, which um, you know, maybe have idiosyncratic risk mm. um, and work well together as a, port- a portfolio. I mean, this is the important thing. Mm. You know, everybody gets very, very hung what up on single stock yeah, recommendations. Yeah, what you already and how yeah. does it matter of it? Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, you talked about, you know, being open to looking at things perhaps like mid-caps. What would be the risks of these kind of shares, you know, mid-cap income shares? 
Well, I mean, it tends to be things like liquidity risk. Mm. Uh, you know, and so I'm not, I'm not, um, I, I mean, actually, I think the liquidity environment, liquidity risk is a, is a key mar- market theme going forward. Because again, you know, look what's happened post-financial crisis. You know, you have a situation where um, a lot of the, you know, the, the, the entities that used to put up capital, for instance, to facilitate trading during, should we say, difficult market conditions, mm-hmm. they're gone. Um, you look at the bond market, you know, which is ultimately linked to what equities do. Quite often, a lot of equity price action is linked by the bond market. You know, I saw statistics that suggest that, you know, the primary dealers in the US uh, bond market, their inventory is down by something like 96%. So which means that they can have a liquidity freeze, which has a knock on onto equity. And yeah, in that environment, all other things being equal, one might expect smaller caps to suffer more from a liquidity or smaller caps to suffer from a liquidity drought because liquidity is rationed. Yeah. Um, Okay. Um, Bearing that in mind, um, are there any other assets you'd hold to mitigate downside in falling markets? Well, um, again, this is quite thematically and all conditioned on, you know, risk tolerances and whatever. But I mean, you know, as I say, looking at non-correlated assets is, is, is key. I think, you know, again, just taking, taking a step back yet again, um, the, 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 again, the sort of 60 40 portfolio, you know, you know, 60 equity, 40 fixed income. That is problematic from the perspective that you know whatever you think about um the valuation of equities it's, it's quite easy to argue that, that a lot of fixed income universe particularly in the uk particularly in sort of you know, sovereign space gilts etc is even more expensive so to expect that to offer an offset from equity market volatility is perhaps some, somewhat unreasonable and yes we did have some compensation um in the most recent drawdown in october but uh, you know if you look at the sort of the lack of inflation compensation, for, for instance, embedded within UK gilts is actually quite concerning. Anyway, to get to your question, so if, if you if you're if I'm saying that it's large parts of the um, of the fixed income space aren't going to give you that sort of diversification and downside protection, you've got to look elsewhere. You've got to look at other non-correlated mm-hmm. assets. Now, that's diff- surprise, surprise. That's difficult because we've had ten years of yeah central banks bidding up public markets. But, I mean, certain areas where you could look at sort of growth stories which are non-correlated, again, thematically, and again, this is all conditioned on, you know, it's things like, you know, renewables. Maybe you look mm. at some some structured products, though, again, you've got to do a lot of due diligence there because, you know, sometimes it's quite opaque as to how those yes. returns are being generated mm. and whether mm. there are tail risks attached to that. You can look at things like maybe convertibles because obviously convertibles have a volatility mm. component and volatility tends to be a kind of cyclical asset class so markets go down yeah it goes up so so these are all sorts of areas but you know sifting through all of that and there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff i mean i could mention private equity the, mm-hmm. again i i saw a a, a survey by ey i think earlier yeah. this week that suggested well whilst um pension fund holders so mm-hmm. these are you know long-term investors mm-hmm. um were scaling down on hedge fund Mm-hmm. Um, uh, hedge fund exposure. I think it was a net negative nine percent. Um, and let's be honest, hedge funds generally have, have struggled mm. in the environment we've had in the last decade. They, I think it was a net positive 25% were looking at private equity. Yeah. So that's a hot button issue right mm. now. But again, you know, we hear about the winners all the time. 
We hear yeah. about the Airbnbs and so forth all the time. We don't hear about the lo- losers. The dispersion of returns within the private equity space is very, very high. So that's why, you know, really doing enormous amount of due diligence, trying to get as much transparency in as possible. Um, but again, a lot of the themes in these, you know, whether it's listed or non-listed private equity, again, is is liquidity. Yeah. Because no. even if they offer daily liquidity, you know, as we saw from the, you know, commercial real estate funds post UK referendum. Well, yeah, they, they say they offer daily liquidity until they don't. And then you've got mm. a problem. Yeah. Now, on the subject of private equity, um, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust mainly invests in global listed equities. But since 2010, it's also been investing in unquoted companies. The trust hasn't been disclosing how these holdings have been performing. But earlier this week, for the first time, it released performance figures. Emma, how have Scottish Mortgage Investment Trusts in quoted investments been performing? Basically very well, Leonora. So unquoted investments made a return of almost 420%, and that's between June 2010, when the trust first started holding unquoted companies, and the 30th of September 2018. And just to give our listeners a sort of um, context, this trust benchmark, the FTSE All World Index, made 160% over that period. So that's 420% for its private assets portfolio compared to 160% for the benchmark. Okay. Um, obviously, these are only one component of Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. So, how you know what's what's its overall return like? Yeah. Um, so, over that period, the trust made a net asset value total return of three hundred and forty-four percent. So, again, the pi- private part of the portfolio did better than that. Um, and in terms of actual the actual contribution that the private company's portfolio made to the trust overall. It was about 17%. Um, that's counting when the companies were remained unlisted. But if you actually look at companies that's actually subsequently listed, in total, the, the private portfolio, the private part of the portfolio made 30% in terms of overall contribution to the trust. Okay, so um, not not majority. What what percentage of, of Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust assets? do unquoted account for? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Basically, at the moment, the trust has about 15% okay. of its um, of its its portfolio in unquoted. And overall, it has 80 holdings, and so 37 of them are in unlisted companies. It can actually have up to a quarter of its assets in unlisted companies. So it actually does have some room for maneuver if it wants to increase that. Okay. Now, have any of these unquoted holdings in particular made a strong contribution? Yeah, definitely. Um, One I'll talk about is Chinese tech firm Alibaba. So the trust bought this company when it um, was an unquoted company in 2012. And it listed in September 2014, at which point the return that the trust had made was 270%. But um, they continue to hold the Alibaba. And subsequently, as of September, they've made a total return of more than 1000%. So that's pretty, you know, whopping return there. Okay. Now, which of its unquoted holdings haven't done so well? 
Well, I mean, I think it's interesting. It's important to kind of raise this point because the managers actually say that the private part of the portfolio so far has actually been performing very, very strongly. But overall, it's still early days and people need to think that some of these companies won't do well. And a couple of examples are two recently listed um, German companies that the Trust bought when they were unlisted. Um, one is called HelloFresh and it delivers meal kits sort of at home. And there's an online furniture retailer, Home24. Both of those so far um, in the last year or so that they've been listed, they've been on the stock market, haven't performed particularly strongly. OK. Now, now Michael, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust and Quoted Investments have overall done very well. And you also mentioned that private equity could be a portfolio diversifier, perhaps to help mitigate downside. But that said, you know, what are the risks of investing in unquoted companies, private equity? Well, there are, there are multiple risks, and I, I think I've touched on some of them. So one is that, um, you know, you're generally talking about very early stage companies, and there's a very high degree of execution risk. And, you know, sometimes you'll you'll get a, um, you know, the next Alibaba, and sometimes you'll get, uh, you know, mm-hmm. petsfood.com, uh, which I don't, don't think, I think that ceased to exist many, many years ago. Um, um, you know, there isn't a great deal of, you know, transparency as to the valuation. And obviously, you know, once they list, you've got a, you've got a market valuation, but until until then, you've got, um, you know, a num- you know, maybe a, a f- relatively few number of bilateral transactions where you just, you know, where the, where the, d- the data is taken from. Uh, liquidity, I've, I've mentioned, obviously, mm-hmm. it's, you know, your ability to trade out, particularly if you want to trade out in the down market, there could be effectively no no bid out there. Um, you know, these these entities tend to be leveraged. I mean, look, there's a lot, the, mm-hmm. there are layers of risk yeah. there. Um, and of course, you know, uh, the, the other thing, of course, and this goes, I guess, for any fund that you, that you, you might be looking to invest in is you've, you've got to trust the managers actually knows, knows what they're doing when they're looking at these opportunities. It's very, very easy to come out sort of starry eyed out, out of a slick presentation. But, you know, um, you, you, they need to be a bit more circumstant before signing any checks. Yeah. I mean, in view of that, then, if, um, you know, you know a fund, for example, like Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, has this allocation to these risky and quoted companies as well as equities you know should you invest in it or should you avoid it Right. Well, you, you, I'm getting perilously close to being asked to make an investment recommendation. Not I mean, specifically well, about no, absolutely mortgage, not. Well, look, I mean, like, about I, funds. Let's say so mixed asset funds well, that include private equity. Um, are they, you know, are they, um, are they a good I idea? Mean, I mean, private equity is mm. for very risk-seeking clients. Mm. I mean, there's very little doubt. I don't think. But that's, what about that's fu- let's say what about a fund that has maybe fifteen percent or ten percent in it? But you know, isn't one hundred percent committed to private equity? Is a mixed yeah. asset fund a good idea? Well, I mean, again, in principle, but you have to take it in context of a you know a broader portfolio. So, if your only holding was Scottish Mortgage, you could say, well, okay, it's only fifteen percent. You know, obviously, if it, if it went twenty twenty five percent, as as you know, they could do that. Mm. Then you'd have to say, well, all other things being equal, that fund is becoming riskier, and mm. it may or may not be suitable for your investment needs anymore. I mean, the the important thing always with these things. Um, is to to seek advice, to seek professional advice, because you know I might think I'm a high risk investor or a mm. medium risk investor, but there's no way I can actually calibrate yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, so you need somebody professionally saying, well, you think you're conservative, but actually you're not, or you think you're, you know, because mm. um, so so you've got to be very very careful um, in this. Uh, so I say, look, I think in certain 
funds with certain risk tolerances, it's a useful component. What I would say is if, 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 if hypothetically Scottish mortgage were part of a broader portfolio, we have to recognise the fact that that private equity is in there. You mm-hmm. are exposed to that. And so we, so if there was a certain risk tolerance, then we would have, you know, as investment managers, we would have to take measures elsewhere to mitigate that that increase in risk mm. profile. It's always, you know, again, it's think beyond the label, think about what you're actually buying, because the label sometimes doesn't tell you a great deal about what you're buying. You need to have a granular view of what your underlying exposure is. Okay. Now, there's obviously also funds that are 100% in private equity, private equity investment trusts. Um, are these a good idea, perhaps for investors who have a high risk appetite? Potentially. I mean, you know, cons- I, 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 I have to be consistent with what I already said. But I mean, yeah, it, I mean, it is high octane stuff. Mm. I mean, there's no, there's no way of getting past it. And uh, again, you know, it, it, it's not even just about appetite for risk. It's appetite, it's ability to wear significant uh, drawdowns, not having any access to your money, potentially. For years, you know, if, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's no surprise that a lot of the private equity space, both quoted and unquoted, is occupied by, you know, very high net worth individuals or, or institutions because they have very large balance sheets and they can take a 10 year view. Yeah. You know, they don't need 4% mm. or 6% a year to fund their golf membership and their, 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 yeah. you know, their holiday abroad. Um, and, um, and, to make it something somewhat more topical, I mean, just to notice that, you know, Goldman Sachs has, you know, announced, you know, new, new partners, a new sort of class of partners. And they said, well, some of the benefits other than, you know, you know, big pay, pay packet is, you know, an opportunity to, you know, participate in exclusive investments. Well, what do you think those are? Well, you know, they're, pro- they're a lot of it. That's going to be private equity stuff that, you know, us mere mortals don't get to see very often. Okay. Now, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust um, recently published its half-year results to the 30th of September. So, Emma, uh, private equity aside, how did it do overall? Well, it just continued to do very well, basically. Over the half year to the 30th of September, its share price has risen 22%. And its NAV was, you know, not far behind at 19%, both of which beat the FTSE All World Index, which made 11%. So, yeah, it's still doing very well. Okay. I mean, it's had a really good run for quite a few years. But can this continue? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. I mean, there are arguments for and against. Um, so on the plus side, the trust has a very good portfolio of stocks. Um, as we're saying, potentially, um, if some of its private assets continue to do well, it could give it a big boost. And the managers are very experienced. You know, they've shown a good track record, track record of being able to choose good companies. But on the other hand, um, its style, its growth-focused style has been very much in favour for the last 10 years. And um, as we saw recently with um, the, the sell-off in, in US tech stocks that happened in October, uh, this trust was, was very hurt by that because it's got such a large exposure in this area. And if the market were to rotate towards more value-focused companies, it could suffer. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's one to wait and see what happens, really. Okay. Michael, um, as Emma just said, a reason for Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust's recent volatility was its exposure to growth-orientated tech stocks. So just turning to these more widely, do you think there's more trouble ahead for tech stocks and should investors avoid funds of substantial weightings to them? 
Uh, it's a tricky one. Um, I, I, there's certainly going to be more volatility ahead. I mean, but I, I but I think that's also true of the of the broader market. Um, well, what I can say is, if you look at the sort of um, numbers, the sort of earnings and so forth, that, that yeah, as the sector as a whole, and I accept it's not a homogenous sector, um, they actually haven't done too badly at all. Um, despite some, you know, headlines and a- Apple's numbers for the Q4 disappointed the market, for instance. But, you know, as a whole, they weren't, weren't too bad. And you're not really seeing analysts um, pair back their, their estimates for either the full year 2018 and 2019. So, you know, the, the growth at least seems to be there. The, the, the mark, how the market prices that growth, of course, is another is another matter. And to, to distinguish between um, what happened in february march in terms of the broader market downturn and what's hap- what happened in october uh, they were distinctly different and i think what you know something which perhaps hasn't been you know touched upon at this point is that um in in february march it was it was a it was a risk free pricing whereas there's a there's there, there are clear worries about growth going forward that were that 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 were behind the October volatility, and you know one would have thought that actually if in a world where there's less growth, then the market pays up for growth, um, generally because growth is scarce. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm going a little bit roundabout. I, I think the the, the 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 so what I'm saying is if you look at it bottom up, if you look at it at the company level, they're largely delivering. Um, and there's clearly an opportunity there. There's always execution risk. I think the biggest risk at the moment is actually legislative or stroke political, actually, because one of the wobble, one of the things behind the wobble in tech earlier in this year when we had you know, Mark Zuckerberg and so forth hauled up mm. in front of the Senate. And one of the areas that we might actually get some bipartisan support, um, you know, a few question marks on this one, but post the US midterms, is, 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 is tighter regulation of the sector uh, in terms of taxation, in terms of treatment of client data. And obviously the, the EU is way ahead of the US in, in, in this regard. Um, and that really would very well be a danger because to some extent the, ga- the game that many of these tech companies have been playing is effectively a form of regulatory arbitrage. Yeah. I mean, on that note, as you said, earlier this week there was an election. How has this affected US markets so far and what could be the implications going ahead? Well, on the day we definitely had a very positive reaction and that spilled over to global markets and we saw it here um, in the UK. And I actually wrote a short piece um, just before the election to say that that actually the the consensus result and bearing in mind how wrong pollsters have been you know it wasn't a, wasn't a complete shoe in uh, but the consensus view was that the the, the democrats would take the uh, the house of representatives and the republicans would retain control of the of the senate so you know effectively a, a, it's a recipe for gridlock particularly how partisan politics are. And the bottom line really is, is that no, very little significant legislation was going to be able to be passed for the remainder of, of Trump's term, so the next two years. Um, now, this, in some respect, might actually be an optimal outcome for investors, given the alternatives. Um, so, for instance, the lack of control for the Republicans takes a second tax cut, probably off the table. For the, for the foreseeable future. And one of the things that the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank, have been worried about is the fact that the, you know, the US is already running what we call a very pro-cyclical you know, fiscal policy. It's the most expansionary relative to the cycle since the Vietnam War. And obviously that's likely to stoke um, inflation. And that's 
one of the reasons why I think the Fed has been rather more uh, aggressive with interest rates and, for, and you know, to bring it up sort of pretty much up to date. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons why the markets last night was somewhat um, disappointed to hear that the Fed was actually probably going to go ahead and raise rates again one more time in December. Um, they thought they might take the, the foot off the gas. The other thing, of course, is the budget budget deficit, which, you know, will have implications, broader implications for the, the dollar, because it's, you know, you would have thought with the extra, you know, interest rates you're getting in the US now over certainly Europe and the UK, that the dollar would be a lot stronger. And the thing holding it back is, is a budget deficit. Now, to go back to sectors, um, you know, we can look at things like pharmaceuticals. Is, I think it's probably the one which has been most cited. Um, and um, I think that, again, there might be some scope for bipartisan support for lower drug prices. It's something that um, Trump campaigned on. It's They've only nibbled away at it. Um, yeah, but I, I suppose yeah. just to, to get back yes. um, to the main issue, um, should investors buy, hold or sell US equities at the moment? Well, I think from a portfolio construction basis, it's very. It depends on how, what you're, how you benchmark. It depends how you benchmark, and you know, it's it's very. It's always very tempting to say, "Well, look, I'm a UK investor. I have UK liabilities. I, I need to generate a, a, you know, a sterling income." What I would say is, this is a this isn't U, uh, US specific. It's 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 a it's a broader issue. Is that over the longer term, international diversification has paid off. Mm. It has paid off, and a lot of that diversification has actually come through the currency exposure. Um, and thematically, thematically, the UK is a relatively defensive market and it's a relatively low growth market. So if you are you're 100% UK, you you are constrained by that. You are and sometimes and if depending on your risk tolerances, that might be perfectly appropriate. But if you're if you're looking for something which is a bit higher growth, maybe a bit riskier, um, and obviously that risk tends to over the longer term tends to be, you know, ameliorated, um, you know, then that's that's fine. And also, you know, I point out and this to some extent comes back to to the to the um you know the private equity uh, theme that we've been following is there are opportunities in the US which you're just not going to get anywhere mm. else you know i once once joked that Would you, you know, say though, that US equities are too expensive because right they offer growth and there's certainly sectors that you can't really get exposure to the UK market but arguably they're very expensive it's at the moment arguably, so yes. should you diversify perhaps another foreign market or should you you know include some exposure to the US well, if you look at the, um, you know, the, the um, uh, all world index, I mean, it's over 50 percent US. So, mm. you know, you, you, it may or may not be the right call, you know, in 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 um, in, in retrospect. But, you know, that that is where the market uh, it's the tyranny of indexation, I'm afraid. Um, I think that I think one of the one of one issue that certainly has to be addressed is, you know, you get this sort of thing going growth at reasonable price as, a, as an investment style. But it's very difficult through this sort of mission creep thing for gr- growth at en- uh, reasonable price to become growth at any price. And you pay a massive premium for growth. And what we've seen is this massive polarization between growth and value. And it was mentioned earlier that, you know, um, you know, you, you've, you've seen, um, you know, growth over outperform value for 10 years. I think it's closer to 20, actually. And um, actually, 
you have seen a bit of a rally of value styles over growth over the last two or three months, and you know, in particularly a bit of a pickup in October. But we've 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 had these sort of thing, you know, false dawns before. We had it in the last quarter of 2016, you know, and then you know what happened in 2017, and you know, and, and tech hasn't performed badly this year either, actually. So, um, I, but I think it is a worry. Uh, I think that. Uh, you know, there are other causes behind it. I think, um, you know, the way that the market is invested in via things like ETFs is helping to distort that polarization in valuation and how that works its way out of the system. I think that's a that's a problem, particularly if it comes at the same time of a of a market liquidity shock. Okay, thank you, Michael. Some really useful points. That brings us to the end of today's show, but you can read more on Defensive Income, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, and unquoted companies in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.